Kia ora, and welcome to the New Zealand History Podcast channel, where you will find talks on Aotearoa New Zealand history, culture, and society. These talks are organised by Manatu Taonga, the Ministry for Culture and Heritage, with the support of the Alexander Turnbull Library. They are recorded live, either via Zoom or in person at Tipuna Matauranga or Aotearoa, the National Library of New Zealand. Tenakoto, Tenakoto, Tenakoto Katoa. It's lovely to be here at the National Library. National Library is such a wonderful host of these events for us. And um, I'm a senior historian at Manitou Tonga. And today we're introducing Jonathan West. Jonathan is an environmental historian. His first award-winning book was The Face of Nature, which was an environmental history of the Otago Peninsula. Um, and this talk that he's going to do today is an extract out of his larger research project, which is called Mirrors on the Land, Histories of New Zealand Lakes, and in which he's going to study eight or nine, he tells me it fluctuates sometimes, um, New Zealand lakes and uh, in order to tell the history of those places and, and a wider environmental history of New Zealand. Uh, and Jonathan started that project as a Stout Fellow in 2019. And he's um, he also got a scholarship from uh, an award from the Manututanga History Research Fund Award. And he is going to complete it with a Judith Binney Fellowship this year. And the book is going to be published by Otago University Press. So thanks very much, Jonathan. We'll look forward to it. Thank you. Tihei Modi order. Uh, Kate Mihi Nui, Kia Au, Kia Koe, Kate, uh, Kia Koe Elizabeth, Tina Korua, Et Te Fari Etu Nei, Te Fari O Te Tiriti me Te Mihe Whakaputanga, Ia Whinei Ia Mātou, Tina Koe. Tina Koutou i o tātou tini mati i tēnei mārama, tēnei wiki, me tēnei rā. Koutou kua whiturangi tia ki te korua o rangi nui. Haere. Haere, haere rā. Uh, ko hoke mai, ahau ki te hunga ora. E rere haere ana nga mihi ki te mana whenua o te rohi nei, te whanganui a tāra, tēnā koutou. Uh, ko wai au, uh, he pāki ahau no otipoti uh, ki te wai paunamu. Engare, e noho ana au i nainai i nainai i ki here taunga, ko Jonathan West, Johnny, Aho. Uh, Kete mahi au ki Tiarawhiti, mō te krauna, engare e harau i te kanohi e te krauna i tēnei kaupapa. Uh, he aha te kaupapa. He kōrero, he kōrero e pāna ki tutira, nā roto, nā whenua, nā tangata ki kora. Nō reira, he mihi nui au ki nā hapu o tutira, nā mana whenua o tērā rohe, Nati kura mokihi, rātou ko nati tū. Nō reira, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa. Uh, I'm delighted that Kate and the Ministry of Culture and Heritage and the National Library have reached out, asked me to give this talk. It's a real privilege. I'm very grateful. Um, thank you. Um, I should thank, too, the supporters of this work, um, of which the talk is a small fruit, the Hocken Collections, the Stout Trust, the Ministry of Culture and Heritage, and finally, and fittingly today, the Judith Binney Trust. Um, and finally, I thank all of you for uh, coming out, including those online, uh, on a winter's day. 
Lake Tutira is my subject today. Lake Tutira lies in a fold of the broken Hawke's Bay hill country north of Napier. State Highway 2 skirts its western shore as it winds to Wairoa, so it's accessible, popular, as a camping place. It attracts trout fishers. Tourists emerge from the torturous turns of the devil's elbow. They look out their windows again in some relief. They see Tutira gleaming, an oasis of quiet beauty. Lovely as it is, though, Tutira is no more than middling. Its streams are piddling. We boast more impressive lakes. But I was always going to begin my history of Aotearoa's lakes there. As the home of Herbert Guthrie Smith, Tutira is synonymous with environmental history here. Herbert Guthrie Smith's Tutira, the story of a New Zealand sheep station, was first published a century ago, 1921. Herbert came to Tutira as a young Englishman in the 1880s to farm sheep. And for the rest of his life, he observed with searching intensity how he and his stock transformed this land and its plants and animals. Tutira, the book, is the fruit, the most comprehensive account written here of environmental change. One of Tutira's great virtues is its care for the particular, its, quote, insistence on the cumulative effects of trivialities. And if you've ever read it, it's like, it is like an encyclopedia of detail. Uh, anatomizing the arrival and spread of the world species from golden willows that grew to adorn the lake margins through a single stout riding switch bought at my request in 83 or 84, to weeping willows Herbert transplanted from cuttings taken from those that grew next to Napoleon's tomb on St. Helena. Possibly apocryphal, since that seemed to happen all around New Zealand. Um, to the stowaways, such as the buttercups that arrived to thrive on the lake margins and the saddlecloths of Maori shearers. To read to Tira is to see the pattern of how together plants, animals, and humans wove empire. Herbert insisted that we look closely with him so that an examination, as it were, under the microscope of one sheep station, we would have discovered what is to be found in all. He claimed, in other words, that Tutira was a microcosm, a lens through which to see all of Aotearoa. Herbert spied out the future too. He awakened comparatively early to the madness of murdering this steep land into sheep country. Readers have heeded, and Tutira has become a cultural urtext through which to understand how Aotearoa has been made a new land. I will focus less on the land today than on the lake. I take my cue from Herbert's largely forgotten first book of natural history, Birds of the Water, Wood and Waste, a title he came to regret for what he deprecated as field notes of an elementary sort. But the opening lines are anything but. Let me read. The lake on Tutira may be considered the heart of the run. It is the centre of all the station's life and energy. It was to the lake, Herbert went on, that all the paths, tracks, the routes and roads of people and their animals led, and all eyes followed. The lake was constant companion for all those living at Tutira. Every one of us sees the lake first thing in the morning, clear and shining in the sun, 
or still wan and clay-stained for weeks after the torrential rains that bring the hillsides of Hawke's Bay down like melting snows off a roof. We see it last thing at night, the moon marking its narrow silver path, or in dark, clear weather, the stars reflecting themselves. In the morning, the lake's surface mirrored what kind of days to come, revealed the wind, forecast the prospects of rain. The day's work, too, was largely done with an eye shot of the lake. So for Herbert, fair weather or foul, daylight or dark, at water level or from the range tops running parallel, the lake is always the prime feature of the landscape. Water animates. It gives land life. If, as often said, rivers and streams are the land's arteries and veins, then lakes are its vital organs. For Herbert, the lake was the land's heart. It captured him from the first. This is how he described the moment he first entered the valley. Before his eyes lay the whole length of the lake, picturesque in its wooded promontories and bays. Along its steeps grew breaks of native woodland, brightened at this season with the deep yellow blossoms of Corfi. The silky leaves of the weeping willows were in their tenderest green, the peach groves sheets of pink. I have looked at this lovely sheet of water a million times since then, but have rarely seen it more fair. Herbert built his house on a lake, on the arise to overlook the lake. His grave lies there beneath a grove of white cherries. He had the deepest affection for the lake's water birds, a true twitcher. He took superb photographs, won only by great patience. He closed his opening chapter on the lake by hoping it may not perhaps be thought too lengthy when its bird life is considered. For besides three species of rail, the white heron, two kinds of shag, bittern, grebe, and many species of ocean straggler, every mainland duck except the wood duck has been, during the past 27 years, identified on its surface. The grey duck, the mountain duck, the scalp, the brown teal, the white-eyed duck, the paradise duck, and the shoveler. In his awareness that the lake sustained the life of the land, and in his love of the lake too, Herbert knew he was a latecomer, following in the footsteps of Māori. It was their well-worn paths he and his animals followed to and around the lake. When Herbert arrived as a young man in 1882, to it was lake and land, all still Māori owned. Herbert leased Tutera, informally and in a rather shambolic arrangement, from members of Ngāti Kurumoki, a hapu of Ngāti Kahanunu. The histories of Ngāti Kurumokihi that Herbert relates into Tutera were told to him by the Rangatira Anaru Kune, his son Aprahama, and last but not least, as he put it, Komatua Tahatakani, that wonderful old man. In writing their histories, Guthrie Smith followed them too, as they used the trails to and from Tutera as threads on which to string our narrative. The lake was the place upon which hapu histories hung. The hapu knew Tutera as the land's focal point, or rather, they knew Tutera looked out over the land for the adjacent little lakes, Waikopiro and Orake, the little lakes, were named the eyes of Tutera. Compared with the lake, the land was almost worthless to them. 
the hapu gained much more food from water than they did from land, especially eels at the lake outlet, but also kākahi, freshwater mussels, beds of which paved the lake shallows, and the large freshwater fish kōkupu. They strung 16 eel weirs and a half-mile stretch of the lake's outlet, the Mahiaruhe stream. The large wetlands there at the head of the lake were famed for flax. As Herbert concluded, the glory of the hapu was in their continued occupation of so famous a lake and their possession of so unfailing a food supply of the most highly prized kind. Their whakatauki, then as now, referred to Tutira as providing patawaiu o tato tipuna, the sustenance of our ancestors for the food and spiritual succor that it gave them. They sang their babies to sleep with this oriori or lullaby. Forgive me, I'm not going to try and sing a melody that I don't know. Pinea rawatia kitutirera, kituua pata kairato, a ehara ehine, iteroto ho, heroto tafito tonu, na mato ko onui. Herbert's translation. Let us gather together to tutira, where are eel weirs and fruit laden trees. The lake, my little girl, is not a new lake, but an ancient lake, possessed by us thy ancestral great ones. Ngāti Kurumokihi, formerly known as Naitātara, had several kāinga and pā around the lake and one on it too. They built up Tauranga Kōo as an island pā from which to defend the lake from those attacking, seeking its resources. And they took the name Ngāti Kurumokihi, meaning those attacked by rafts, Mokihi, following one such defence. The actions of another attacker show their knowledge of how to manipulate their environment. Te Whatu Apiti, drawn to Tutira after eating its eels, judged in the event its defenders were too strong for him, and so decided instead to kill the eels by diverting the main inflow, the Papakiri stream, from entering the great marsh that then fed the lake. And this, Guthrie Smith was told, made the whole lake pedo uh, as a frightful stench arose. After Te Whatu departed, though, Ngāti Kuramokihi reconnected the stream and restored their lake. Scientists say that Māori reshaped the land more permanently by burning off the podocarp forest of the catchment. Because over perhaps some 60 years, the forest disappeared and bracken and shrubs grew in its place. Um, iwi do query this, suggesting the fires were likely natural. Whatever the case, Erosion into the lake likely increased, but not markedly, as bracken is dense, deep-rooted, and could largely hold the land. It is Tutira's sediments that is the key source of such knowledge about the lake, about the catchment, about the wider Hawke's Bay, and even Aotearoa, and abroad. Scientists of many stripes have long understood that sediment cores from Tutira offer unparalleled information about change over time and the lake and the world around it. Lake beds like Tutira are the best of nature's archives. They are mirrors on the land, or that they are mirrors on the land, is much more than a visual truth. Uh, I'm just going to treat these as largely illustrative, but the sly, the, to the left, you see a long uh, 
cross-sections of the sediment cores showing the different grades of sands and stones and so forth that are found in there, including the tephras, which are left by the volcanic eruptions. You see a more visual top here with the black layers, which are the more organic layers with storm layers in between, much thicker, another ash, same sort of thing down here. Shows that how the mud layers were called the storms uh, and the other catastrophic erosion events through earthquakes. All right. Um, Lake Tutiera's sediments have provided us a continuous high-resolution record of environmental change. They've revealed climate, recorded weather, captured volcanic eruptions, earthquakes, rates of erosion, changes in the plants and animals around and in the lake. The cores are documents that we can read to understand the interplay of atmosphere, land, lake, the elements, water, earth, life, and air. The pollen diagram on your left, which you would never read at this scale, is simply showing that you can read sediments for pollen. Pollen preserves remarkably well. You can identify it down to species level very accurately. And you can see through the sediment the change from forest, all the different podocarp taxa, through bracken and other shrubs, and now into all the different exotics. Um, more recently, we have been able to use environmental DNA techniques, uh, the Lakes 380 project, which I have had some conversations with, is leading this work. And they can identify more soft tissue species um, which do not have pollen and record what kind of algae are present in the lake over time and map that against the storm sediments. This is me hanging out with the Lake 380 guys for one brief but very fun day as we took a sediment core of Lake Tutera, um, quite a small one and quite, uh, therefore only recording the top few hundred years at max at that level. One of the things I loved about this is it's quite um, simple. A sediment core is basically a plastic tube that you drop down to the bottom of the lake and then drop it up and down and drop it up and down and you basically hammers itself into the lake bed, uh, which takes quite a long time and then you pull it up. It's um, quite physical uh, work. And a long day on the lake getting them. The lake's sediment is 27 metres thick. Dating wood from the bottom tells us that Tutera was only formed some 7,000 years ago by a massive earth slide, uh, which comes in uh, you can see it's marked here down the bottom on the left, landslide complex coming in between Tutera and the little lake next to it, Lake Waikopiro. Likely the same earthquake that may have caused the formation of Waikari Moana. The earthquake blocks the valley, dams the valley floor stream. The sediment caused from the sediment for, since show the way weather and water has shaped the land over the 7,000 years after pulling it off steep slopes, slipping and sliding into the lake. Erosion, earth flows into Jutira have blanketed its bed, reshaped its edges, altered its chemistry, and caused dramatic shifts in plant and animal communities. Herbert understood a lot of this. Erosion in all its aspects fascinated him. He very soon saw it as the major problem for land use on this steep, soft rock hill country. He foresaw, the country under my regime has been shorn of its fleece. In the time to come, it will be flayed of its very skin. Hawke's Bay has a generally sunny, dry climate, but it's punctuated by violent cyclonic storms. 
Herbert provided very graphic descriptions of their effects. Chichira, indeed, after a violent buster, as he called them, appears to have been weeping mud. Sometimes a whole hillside will wrinkle and slide like snow melting off a roof. These are pictures of the aftermaths of the Anzac Day storm of 1938, which caused such terrible floods that it compelled government action, inaugurated soil and water conservation in this country. It deposited a foot of sediment on the lake bed. 50 years later, Cyclone Bowler flayed the land as Herbert had feared, pulling a further three quarters of a million cubic meters of soil into the lake, over half of which is still there. In 1925, Herbert surveyed the depths of the lake. He rode for five days up, down, across the surface, under a midsummer's relentless sun. He was helped by the archdeacon, later bishop, Herbert Williams, who, while um, Guthrie Smith rested on his oars, took 357 soundings. These are the little notations all over the lake that you see here as he dropped a anchored rope down and figured out how deep it was at that point. It's a bathymetry map. Uh, Herbert then placed a concrete block as a benchmark for the lake level. And in 1963, Patrick Grant, who was then hydrologist for the Hawke's Bay Catchment Board, was inspired by Herbert's example to repeat the exercise, but uh, by jet boat, sensibly. Um, he found the lake had filled in over a metre. As he pointed out, Tutira will disappear within 700 years at that rate, fulfilling the future that Herbert foresaw here. Lakes then genuinely do live in time. They have lives and it is meaningful to tell their biography. This lake will live for perhaps 8,000 years, which is a meaningful span of time in human terms, I think. Sediment cores give us a little more precision. They show that grass and grazing this flayed land, here it is pictured in 1945, bare, has increased erosion tenfold. As Guthrie Smith and his animals reshaped the lake and its catchments ecology, they reformed Maori relationships with the lake too. Herbert burnt everything that was dry. He drained everything wet. His cattle and sheep compacted soil, turning it from sponge to slate, crushing the vegetation. In the wake of all this, all manner of new plants erupted, many besides those Herbert sowed and planted himself, flowing in with trade from all parts of the globe, so that by 1940, Herbert's death, close to half the naturalised plants of New Zealand grew in the immediate vicinity of the lake. The most significant single change that affected the lake occurred in the 1890s, when Herbert cut his great drain through the large wetland that then surrounded and protected the lake's northern end. This act, which Herbert later came to see as something uh, astonishing feat of young hubris and stupidity, um, dropped the lake immediately two feet and gouged the outlet stream into a deep trench. Without the wetlands filtering effects, soil and nutrients flowed unchecked into the lake. Māori owners fought this, Herbert recalled, some seeking court orders forbidding burning bracken or banning drainage. On the ground, it might affect the welfare of the eels. This was nonsensical to a young farmer, Herbert recalled. But I think the older man belatedly saw their wisdom. 
He certainly regretted introducing trout, despite the fact he had a lifelong interest as a keen fisherman. Um, he himself carried the first over up from Napier on his saddlebow to try and establish them in the lake in the 1890s. Those efforts failed, but both brown and rainbows have thrived in the lake from the early 20th century, sustained for many decades by annual releases by the Hawke's Bay Acclimatization Society, now Fish and Game. Herbert recalled the trout's extraordinary increase, unit, hundred, hundred thousand, as they gorged on native fish and invertebrates, reaching enormous sizes. His regret, though, stemmed from their eating out the food of his most beloved scalp. It's the black teal. His work is often a lament for loss, for destruction. In the 16 years between the first and second editions of that first book, Birds of the Water, 1910 to 1927, he documented the disappearance from Tutera of Fiel, Blue Duck, Brown Duck, Fernbirds, Weka, Pukeko, they've come back, as well as reductions, large reductions in almost every other bird, including scalp, tui, grey warblers, kedadu, fantails, wax eyes. Uh, by the second edition, edition's preface, he was making predictions. He believed we could protect birds through our forests by trapping pests and planting, as we still hope we may be able to. But he also predicted that birds would rapidly and almost completely disappear from the farms of New Zealand. For their owners then, quote, would scalp their parents for the sake of two extra blades of Coxford. He tried very hard to stave off that future on Tutera. He took the just to be those who protect their native birds, and it was for him a very personal path to his own salvation. Quote, I have committed crimes in my life, I know, who hasn't? But I believe expiation may have been accomplished during those hours of anguish, kneeling on a waterproof and slowly sinking into the ooze. For he and his wife, Georgina, and his daughter lived with native birds to, in a degree of intimacy that is quite lost to almost all of us. I guess dock staff kind of relive a bit of this. They rescued and released a lot of lost and abandoned hatchlings. Barbara would rear them under a hen until the family could all join in the ceremony of leading them down to the lake and witnessing their first wandering and then ecstatic venture onto open water. And they kept some of these as pets. Uh, Pukeko, a kereru in particular. There's a wonderful photo of, of a kereru feeding from Herbert's open mouth, for example. Having witnessed the intimacies of their lives, he wrote, shooting these species is no longer conceivable. Tutera made him famous, very famous, uh, in New Zealand and abroad, uh, amongst largely scientific circles. And he also made powerful friends. In 1929, he had the lake and its surrounds made a sanctuary for native and imported game. Protection continued under the Wildlife Act of 1953, which legislation is uh, rather astonishingly still in force. Herbert died in 1940, and by then Tutera Station, the lease had been uh, reorganised, the Crown had applied, uh, acquired most of the lands. Tutera Station was only 2,000 freehold acres beside the lake, and in accordance with his will, that was donated under trust for the recreation and education of the people of New Zealand. And almost all Hawke's Bay kids will go up to theatre at some point. 
The sanctuary's creation, though, good for the people of New Zealand as it may have been, eclipsed Māori efforts to retain the lake and its resources. Guthrie Smith's otherwise encyclopedic writing passes over this in complete silence. In fact, as Richard Boast points out, he generally casts what is a cloaking comic haze over his relations with the Māori owners of Tutira. He would have us, for example, believe they took him to court to dissipate ennui and boredom. Theirs is a tangled history, but in short, Herbert and the government believed the Crown had to have the lake. Māori owners said Tutira was protected by the treaty, so too their fishing rights in it. Uh, this was backcountry, inaccessible badlands that the government really had no business trying to acquire, but it did seek to acquire it, and quite determinedly after the First World War to try and uh, put returned soldiers on it. And having done that, it had to divide the land between the Crown and Māori, and that meant deciding who would own the lake. Uh, at this point, you see a fracturing across different government departments as they stall and debate tactics. Do they split the lake? Do they wait to try and buy out the last owners and meanwhile protect some ealing rights? But in the end, matters are forced because the Public Works Department idiotically moves to compulsorily acquire the land at the lake outlet where Māori camped to stay and go ealing. That forced everyone's hand and the native, la the native land court split the lake in 1928 and Māori owners kept only the northern tip as they do to this day. Those owners tried a final throw of the dice. They offered, if their ownership of Tūtira was recognised, to gift the lake back to the nation, uh, provided their customary rights to fish and fowl were protected. That was ignored. So Guthrie Smith and the government largely had their way, and Tūtira has been managed as a public reserve for recreation, bird watching, trout fishing. Māori owned the outlet, continued eeling there. But for decades, the Hawke's Bay Acclimatisation Society and their Lone Ranger WA gun waged war on those eels, systematically killing as many as possible, blaming them for eating trout and scope, and contemplated how to prevent elvers entering the lake also. As late as the 1980s, the reserve management plans for Tutera proposed fewer eels. Fewer eels meant more trout, more birds, so commercial eel licenses and harvests were recommended and encouraged, and the reserve management plans also contemplated and recommending trying to buy out what Māori still retained of their lake. So it is not especially surprising that Māori resisted for a very long time efforts to have their part of the lake included in the wildlife refuge. Called to consider and judge such behaviour against treaty principles, it is not surprising that the Waitangi Tribunal issued a range of findings, most of which uh, condemned the Crown's purchasing behaviour, but also found the government tardy, tardy, too late, too late to take action, too late to try and exert environmental control. And other historians, Richard Boast among them, consider the government has simply poorly managed the lake that it so determinedly acquired. These sorts of assessments rest on commentaries about the state of the lake. In 1940, uh, almost on his deathbed, 
Guthrie Smith famously asked himself the question that lies at the core of Pākehā environmental history here. Everybody quotes it, and I shall follow suit. Have I then for 60 years desecrated God's earth and dubbed it improvement? If you read his uh, Sorrows and Joys of a New Zealand Naturalist, the answer there was mostly he didn't really see himself as fit to live. He certainly knew the likely verdict of posterity on pastoral farming in this unstable catchment. And it is easier today to judge this past because putting animals on grass has made Lake Tutera a sick lake. And that would really have sickened Herbert Guthrie Smith, who never lived to see this. Lake Tutera has been sick for more than 60 years. It suffers advanced eutrophication or nutrient pollution, causing uh, severe toxic algal blooms and sometimes mass, mass fish and eel kills, alongside invasions of noxious waterweeds. This one. Uh, despite decades of efforts to solve these problems, prospects of success are uncertain. And in this concluding section to today's talk, I will try and explain why. Why are these problems so intractable? Because this has lessons for the rest of New Zealand. I spoke to Laurel Tierney, who, while a young woman in the 1970s, spent several years as the first scientist on the scene asked to save the lake. She arrived after our friend Good Ranger Gunn raised the alarm about a range of strange symptoms, the first of which was the spread of this world's worst noxious waterweed, hydrilla, likely escaped from an aquarium. Uh, as they still do. So those of you who keep fish, I really, really didn't. Um, this is capable of forming tall underwater forests that choke out all other life. It's sort of the underwater equivalent of pine. Now, there was a thought even then you could put carp in this lake to eat out the weed. And grass carp were eventually introduced uh, after decades of anxiety and debate and tests and trials in 2008. This has actually been by and large, a great success, certainly in terms of how it's eradicated the weed, although some of the other effects on the lake are a bit harder to judge. Uh, prospects are that this weed now may be fully eradicated. It can kind of rejuvenate from little tubers and they survive for quite a long time. So it's sort of fingers crossed. It wasn't time for the carp, not then. Laurel was there first to understand what was going on. What was going on? because Ranger Gunn had seen the first bad algal blooms in 1972, and he had also found dead fish on the surface. Laurel arrived, she told me, in 1973, a really hot year, a very unusual year. On the surface, she said, the blooms were so thick, it looked like khaki and blue-gray paint had been poured in. She started sampling from spring, diving right through the dark to the lake bottom, sinking there into what she told me was a black gelatinous decomposed algal goo you just carried on descending through. She said, I never knew of it at the bottom. She suffered continuous ear infections, skin rashes. She was always on antibiotics. Lakes like Tutira stratify in summer. That means they separate into a shallower surface band of warm water that sits on top of a cold, dense layer where most of the lake is. And Laurel was astounded having arrived in spring, that by early summer, the whole of this lower lake was completely devoid of oxygen. It had all been decomposed by bacteria as they decomposed the vast algal blooms. 
That was why fish were being forced to the surface and dying. Anything that couldn't flee died. That first awful summer, Laurel found the catchment board charged with protecting the health of the lake, bewildered. No idea why this was happening. Because she had begun her work just before this worst bloom was happening, they blamed her. <laughs> she herself was certain. She watched the planes flying over, including big DC-3s, and spraying phosphate fertilizer over the whole lake catchment, including sometimes the lake, even right before heavy rain. When the wives and children of Tutira invited this beautiful young scientist to come talk to them, they laid on a big country fair, they all lost appetite as she told them the fertilizer they spread was killing their lake. They had had no idea. To understand how these nutrients cause Tutera's intractable algal blooms, we're going to have to delve quickly, deeply into limnology, the science of lakes. Scientists are fond of saying that lakes are complex, but Andy Hicks, then scientist at Hawke's Bay Regional Council, gave me a simple hook. A sick lake, he said, keeps itself sick. This happens through self-reinforcing feedback loops. The best known as oxygen. Effectively, if lakes run out of oxygen, then the chemical bonds between phosphorus and the lake sediments uh, dissolve and the phosphorus is released into the, into the water column. Um, similar things happen with pH2. Um, as uh, bacteria decompose all the algae, um, they suck up, uh, uh, they, they release a lot of uh, carbon dioxide, so you get a very high pH. Um, this is very bad, too, for uh, everything from trout, eels to bullies and freshwater mussels because under high pH, nitrogen is converted to toxic ammonia gas. So you do end up with a lake that's like a vat of toxic gas, um, extremely high pH um, and with no oxygen. Um, one of the important things to realize is that these nutrients don't disappear. They're not fuel. They just cycle round and round and round. Each gram of phosphorus, say, can support 500 grams of algae and it doesn't disappear until it's flushed out of the lake. It doesn't burn up. It just goes round and round and round in a never-ending cycle. So that is why sick lakes keep themselves sick. It is also why Laurel Tierney is so profoundly pessimistic about this lake's prospects. She thinks she should, tongue-in-cheek, suck the water out and make it a skateboard bowl. Others, Andy Hicks for one, are a bit more optimistic, but we have very little to show for over 50 years' effort, and we have very few new ideas. In fact, just like the lake, we are recycling the same things that we have tried since the 1970s. This catchment has been subject to the longest, uh, one of the very earliest, with the exception of Topol, efforts to change land use and thereby improve water quality that we have seen in this country. And that is why it is such a useful lesson for efforts that are ongoing now to do the same elsewhere. Uh, I would say it demonstrates just how hard this is, how determined you need to be and how consistent efforts must be. Um, in the 1970s, the catchment board was stimulated into action. You only have to tell so many wives that uh, they are killing the lake, that when people have to act. Um, in this case, they set up a technical committee. Uh, this was a committee unlike other committees. It worked fast and it uh, recommended uh, a complete suite of actions within one year. They were all designed to reduce phosphorus between up to five and nine times. They listened to the science on this. They canvassed all the uh, possible solutions very quickly. These included aerating the water, diverting the main inflow stream, um, which drained most of the catchment, 
including all the intensively farmed areas, reforesting the slopes, writing farm management plans, and using the chemical alum to precipitate nutrients and lock them into the lake bed. Those are the solutions that have been in play ever since. Uh, they held large public meetings, and Tierney and McColl confronted the farmers head-on. Soil erosion, runoff of dung, urine, and fertilizer was the problem. They were the problem. So solutions had to be about the catchment. They were very blunt. Accepted agricultural practices, McColl told this meeting, have destroyed the high quality of the lake, and to undo the damage will not be easy and will depend on the willingness of people and the government to spend time and spend money. So they proposed two things, in essence. One, radical emergency surgery. Rob McColl had calculated that 90% of the nutrients came out of the Papakiri stream, where the most intensive farming was. That's most of the catchment. So they proposed, and this was done, they just diverted that stream away, straight into the outlet, so it never reached the lake. It's like a radical heart bypass. And it severed the lake from two-thirds of its catchment. Second, they proposed wholesale land use changes and catchment controls. Switch 80% of what remained of the catchment from farm to forest. Retire all the steep slopes, fence, riparian planting along all the lake margins and all the stream beds. Bold, visionary thinking, costed, but very bad timing. Farmers had not done much before agricultural subsidies were removed and they all cried poor. Then Cyclone Bowler hits, swamped everything they had done. They had to start again. They did start again in the 1990s when the Hawke's Bay Regional Council bought up the steep slopes on the eastern side for a park to show how this could be done. They've, in essence, retired some land and left things to go back to Manuka. They've plants to, to they've enhanced some wetlands. Um, they're hoping to get some money off the Manuka, which is not going well, unfortunately. More recently, Following settlement of their treaty claims, Ngāti Kurumokihi have, which is part of the broader settling group of the Maunga Haruru Tangitu Hapu, have regained ownership of most of the lake bed. And they are spearheading renewed efforts at rehabilitation. Working with the regional council, they have secured several million dollars of government funding, and they have to develop a new plan for the lake and its catchment. So far, they have essentially done what the 70s plan proposed. They are pushing in new directions. They are, for example, disinclined to uh, allow fishing games such easy access, and the hapu have stopped more trout releases because they are seeking the restoration of tuna, kākahi, and other natives. They've put a rope ladder up the waterfall to try and allow elvers to get back in. They hope to reconnect the Papakiri stream to help flush the lake, initially at low flows only. That would mirror their achievement of centuries ago when they reconnected the Papakiri stream after the enemy's attack and restored the lake. But land use in that catchment has really intensified in the last 40 years, and there is a lot more dairy up there. And a lot will need to change before the lake and the land can be fully reunited. That technical committee thought that its proposals reduce nutrient loads by 90% and so reduce the lake to health. Its recommendations have been done for some time, but that lake is not anything like healthy. The summers of 2011, 12, 16, and 17 all saw very bad blooms, which made national press as here. 
perhaps more recently still, there are a few encouraging signs. I certainly was there in the summer of 2020 and had a lovely swim. And then next year, the official swimming ban was lifted. And some. Herbert Guthrie Smith spent 60 years transforming this catchment, and we have spent just as long trying to fix it. Options are few, prospects uncertain. Rob McColl's words to the people of the community in 1976 still ring true. Will not be easy, will take time, it will take money. That is the problem we face more generally. Lakes, therefore, are more than mirrors on the land. When we look at the state of a lake, we see ourselves. We see a reflection on the health of our community. It's said the past isn't dead, it isn't even past. And Tutera shows that's as true of lakes as it is of ourselves. In lakes, as with people, history has an ongoing, ever-recycling legacy. What will our legacy be? Will we work together and hold fast to a long-term vision when there may be no easy wins? Can we? Will we be willing to change land use? Will we be willing to retreat? Limnologist Mark Schellenberg has said to me categorically, no New Zealand lakes with intensively farmed catchments have good water quality. None. We've never before made this work. But then, hapu have never been in charge before. Looking to the future, Andy Hicks tried to turn this around for me. We don't yet know whether or how intensive farming and good water quality can go together. Never before, or perhaps not yet. Historians are not qualified to offer hope for the future. But personally, I do live in some hope that Ngāti Kuramokihi will one day decide it is safe and right to return the Papakiri stream to Tutira and make the lake and the land and the people whole again. Nō reira, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā tātou kato. Thanks for listening to this New Zealand history podcast from Manatū Taonga. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you're looking for other content about New Zealand history, check out earlier talks in the series. You can find them on your favourite podcast channels. Just search for New Zealand history. Māti wā!